Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Long Civil Rights Movement, Part 3. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the slide, Latino Civil Rights. Sometimes, we fall into the trap about talking about civil rights within a white and black binary meaning that we only talk about African Americans in the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, this is just one part of the long civil rights movement, because the civil rights movement is not just about African American rights, because there are other groups that fought for these same rights during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So now, let us turn our attention to the Latino civil rights movement before we move on to women's liberation, the American Indian movement, in the fight for LGBTQT rights. As we discussed in a previous lecture, in August of 1942, the United States began the Bracero Program, which was a temporary intergovernment agreement for the use of Mexican agricultural labor on United States farms. And this was also referred to as the Mexican Farm Labor Program. And this led to the influx of legal, temporary Mexican workers. From 1942 to 1964, 4.6 million contracts were signed, with many individuals returning several times on different contracts, making it the largest U.S. contract labor program. It was created by executive order in 1942 because many growers argued that World War II would bring labor shortages to low-paying agricultural jobs. However, the program lasted longer than many anticipated. In 1951, after nearly a decade in existence, concerns about production and U.S. entry into the Korean conflict led Congress to formalize the Barcaro Program with Public Law 78. Both the program and the public law were controversial during its own time. Mexican nationals were desperate for work and were willing to take arduous jobs at wages scorned by most Americans. Farm workers already living in the U.S. worried that Barcaro's would compete for jobs and lower wages. Workers, too, were supposed to theoretically get safeguards to protect both Mexican and domestic workers, but in the end, many of the guarantees about employment, housing, sanitation, and other concerns were never met by the U.S. government. Employers also skirted rules for the Bracaros. They were only supposed to hire these individuals when there was a certified domestic labor shortage but in fact they began using them as strike breakers, and they benefited from the plentiful cheap labor which allowed them to drop farm wages which hurt domestic and immigrant farm laborers. While farm workers continued to be exploited, Latino American citizens faced social harassment. In 1943, Los Angeles erupted in the Zoot Suit Riots, which was the worst race riot in the city to that date. For 10 nights, American sailors cruised Mexican-American neighborhoods in search of zoot suiters, which were hip, young Mexican teens dressed in baggy pants and long-tailed coats. These soldiers dragged kids, some as young as 12 years old, out of movie theaters and cafes, and they tore their clothes off them and viciously beat them. In total, 150 people were injured and 500 Chicanos were arrested, while the perpetrators were never brought to justice. 
public schools also became sites of conflict. In 1945, Mexican-American parents sued several California school districts, challenging the segregation of Latino students into separate schools. The California Supreme Court ruled in the parents' favor in Mendez v. Westminster, which argued segregation violated the children's constitutional rights, and this was a case that provided an important precedent for the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954. We also see deportation efforts begin in 1954 during Operation Wetback, and I'm very sorry to use that term, but that is literally the name of the operation, from 1953 to 1958. The U.S. Immigration Service arrested and deported more than 3.8 million Latino Americans. Many U.S. citizens were deported unfairly, including the political activist Luisa Moreno and other community leaders. These policies were met with legal action. The 1954 Hernandez v. Texas case became the first post-World War II Latino civil rights case heard and was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. The Hernandez decision held that Mexican-Americans and all other nationality groups in the U.S. had equal protection under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. In other words, it finally recognized that groups other than African-Americans could be discriminated against and moved to prevent such injustices. By the 1960s, farm workers sought to improve their working conditions. For 100 years before Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, farm workers tried and failed to organize a union. Every strike was crushed, and every union was defeated. Caesar knew that farm workers could not win with just a simple field strike, since the growers controlled all the rural, social, and political institutions. Latino farm workers, led by Caesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, created the National Farm Workers Association. On September 8, 1965, Filipino-American grape workers and members of the Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee walked out on strike against Delano area table and wine grape growers, protesting years of poor pay and conditions. By 1966, the Filipino Farm Union merged with the Latino Union, which created the United Farm Workers Association in Delano, California. This became the largest and most important farm worker union in the nation, and Hoyta becomes the first woman to lead such a union. This organization would also create the first major farm walkout in modern American history. Historians call this the Great Boycott, and it is one of the most significant social justice movements for farm workers in the United States. This boycott of Latino and Filipino workers changed the scene of the battle from the fields where the odds were stacked against the farm workers, to the cities, where farm workers could appeal for help from the American people, whom Caesar called, quote, our last court of last resort, end quote. Caesar and the farm workers believed if consumers and communities throughout North America knew about the suffering of field laborers and saw that grape strikers struggled nonviolently, they would come to their aid. For Caesar, nonviolence couldn't be understood in the abstract. It could only be seen in action. And he said, quote, The whole essence of nonviolent action 
is getting a lot of people involved, vast numbers, doing little things, end quote. Caesar knew that most people could not drop what they were doing and dedicate themselves to the movement. But Caesar also knew that if he showed ordinary people that by making little sacrifices every day, like not eating grapes, they could directly help the poorest of the poor. So from the beginning, this would be a different kind of strike. Latino and Filipino strikers worked together, sharing the same picket lines, strike kitchens, and union halls. The strike drew unprecedented support from outside the Central Valley of California and from other unions, church activists, students, Latinos, and other minorities, as well as civil rights groups. The strike also used marches to draw attention. Caesar led a 300-mile march from Delano to Sacramento, and it placed farm workers' plights squarely before the consciousness of the American people. The strikers turned to boycotts, including table grapes, which eventually spread across the continent. But Caesar knew that the strikers' greatest weapon was simply their decision not to quit, to persevere no matter what the odds were or however long it would take. The strikers had to prepare to risk everything, beginning with their financial security. Well, two and a half years into the strike, during the winter of 1967 and 1968, some of the strikers, especially the young men, were growing impatient, since there was no hope of victory anytime soon. Some young males talked about violence, others about striking back against the growers who abused them. They basically wanted to fight to show their machismo or their manliness and not be victims. Some of the strikers even equated nonviolence with inaction or cowardice. But Caesar believed exactly the opposite. He believed nonviolence is more powerful than violence, that it supports you if your cause is just. For Caesar, nonviolence was more than just a tactic or a strategy. He once wrote, quote, However important the struggle is, and however much misery, poverty, and exploitation exist, we know that it cannot be more important than one human life. End quote. Caesar did not just lecture or order people around, he led by example. So in February 1968, following the example of Gandhi, Caesar began fasting and rededicated the movement to nonviolence. For 25 days, he went without food and only drank water. The fast actually divided the DUFW staff. Some didn't understand why Caesar was doing it. Others were worried about his health. But the farm workers understood. A Catholic mass was held daily near where Caesar was fasting in a tiny windowless room of an adobe-walled gas station at the 40 Acres, which was the UFW headquarters outside of Delano. Hundreds and then thousands came. In just 25 days, Caesar lost 35 pounds, and his doctor said that his life was in danger. But the fast worked, and all talk of violence stopped. Dr. King personally wrote Caesar, expressing his admiration and solidarity. Senator Robert F. Kennedy described Caesar as a hero. After 25 days, the fast ended but the grape strike continued, as did the boycott. This boycott connected middle-class families in big cities with poor farm workers in the California vineyards. Millions stopped eating grapes. At dinner tables across the country, 
parents gave children a simple and powerful lesson in social justice. By 1970, the grape boycott was a complete success. Table grape growers at long last signed their first union contracts, granting workers better pay, benefits, and protections. So as you can see, standing up for what you believe in and sacrificing can work. While farm workers saw moderate improvement, school districts continued to suppress Latino culture. In 1968, Latino high school students in Los Angeles staged citywide walkouts protesting their unequal treatment by the school district. Prior to these walkouts, Latino students were routinely punished for speaking Spanish on school property. They were not allowed to use the bathroom during lunch and were actively discouraged from going to college. Those who took part in the walkout were subjected to police brutality and public ridicule, and 13 were arrested on charges of disorderly conduct and conspiracy. However, the walkouts eventually resulted in school reform and an increased college enrollment among Latino youth. That same year, in 1968, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund opened its doors, and it became the first legal fund to pursue protection of civil rights of Mexican-Americans. Throughout the 1970s, progressive organizations based in Mexican, Filipino, Arab, and other immigrant communities began organizing documented and undocumented workers. Together, they strove towards legalization and union rights against INS raids and against brutality from ICE and other immigration organizations. While there have been great advances, the country still has a great deal of anti-immigration sentiment that is used in American politics, despite a bipartisan history of reform. Nixon himself only used immigration as a political football, especially in the 1968 election, to scare Westerners about Mexicans. But he dropped it once he was elected, and only brought it up again during the Watergate investigation to draw attention away from his crimes. Ronald Reagan, who used a great deal of anti-immigrant rhetoric, also embraced amnesty. Reagan proposed the single largest amnesty for illegal immigrants in the 1980s, and simultaneously removed federal oversight of farm hiring practices, which caused even more illegal immigration. The larger point is that the Latino civil rights movement is not just about voting. It's about the terrible conditions that Latinos are forced to work in. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Women's Liberation. In the 1950s and early 60s, women could not sign a loan without their husband's approval. There were gender quotas in college classes, and women routinely suffered workplace harassment and discrimination with little legal recourse. Women were also paid 59 cents on the dollar, compared to a male making a whole dollar for the same work. In 1963, Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique, which was about female discontent and oppression. Prior to the book, in 1957, Friedan had asked to conduct a survey of her former Smith College classmates for their 15th anniversary reunion. She found that many of her former classmates were unhappy with their lives as housewives, which prompted her to begin research for the book, 
in which she conducted interviews with other suburban housewives, as well as researching psychology, media, and advertising. She originally intended to publish an article on the topic, not a book, but no magazine would publish her article. So during 1964, The Feminine Mystique became a best-selling non-fiction book, with over one million copies sold. In her work, Ferdinand challenged the widely shared belief in the 1950s that, quote, fulfillment as a mother had only one definition for American women after 1949, the housewife mother, end quote. Her book will help touch off second-wave feminism, which focused on correcting female inequality. Second-wave feminism is a period of feminist activity and thought that began in the early 1960s and eventually spread throughout the Western world and beyond. While first-wave feminism had focused mainly on suffrage and overturning legal obstacles to gender equality, like voting rights and property rights, second-wave feminism broadened the debate to a wide range of issues, such as sexuality, family, the workplace, reproductive rights, de facto inequalities, and official legal inequalities. Second-wave feminism also drew attention to domestic violence, and marital rape issues, which led to the establishment of rape crisis centers and battered women's shelters, as well as changes in custody and divorce law. Feminist-owned businesses such as bookstores, credit unions, and restaurants were among the key meeting spaces and economic engines of the movement. In terms of legal changes, second-wave feminism pushed the Equal Pay Act of 1963, which attempted to ban wage disparity based on sex, so it dropped unequal pay to 80 cents on the dollar by 2004. Three years later, the National Organization for Women was formed, and this group was a complement to the NAACP in that it was also focused on legislative lobbying. They tried to bring women into the mainstream of society, and they wanted the same privileges and responsibilities as men. In this era, Protests were huge for the women's liberation movement. Women were out in the streets in force throughout the 60s and 70s because protests were the best way to grab the nation's attention, and the more inconvenient they were, the better. So, these women are going to cause traffic delays, occupy buildings, stage sit-ins, and women's rights activists even protested outside the Miss America pageant as well as federal and local government buildings. Medical science also contributed a tool to assist women in their liberation. In 1960, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the birth control pill, freeing women from the restrictions of pregnancy and childbearing. Women who were able to limit, delay, or prevent reproduction were freer to work, attend college, and delay marriage. Within five years of the pill's approval, some 6 million women were using it. And the pill was the first medicine ever intended to be taken by people who were not considered traditionally sick. And it could also be used to alleviate other female health issues. At the time, some conservatives saw this as a possible means of making marriages even stronger by removing the fear of an unwanted pregnancy and improving the health of women. Its opponents, however, argued that it would promote sexual promiscuity, undermine the institutions of marriage and the family, 
and destroy the moral code of the nation. Thus, by 1965, 30 states had made it a criminal offense to sell contraceptive devices. So in 1965, the Supreme Court ruled in Griswold v. Connecticut that an earlier law against birth control violated the right to marital privacy. This decision soon led many single women to also use contraceptives, and this reproductive freedom allowed women to take charge of their bodies and precipitated the sexual revolution that was to follow. While now was seen as a more tame civil rights organization, the Women's Liberation Branch consisted of a younger, educated middle-class white women who had been active in the civil rights movement as well as the students' movement. They were more radical and confrontational and viewed the fight of feminism as a war between men and women. They wanted to revolutionize American society and spent much time attacking the stereotypical view of women. Some of these women advocated a separation rather than an integration and can be likened to the black power movement of the civil rights era. In fact, some women compared the situation of their sisters to that of African Americans and said, quote, The assumption of male superiority is as widespread and deeply rooted and every bit as crippling to the woman as the assumptions of white supremacy are to the Negro. End quote. As I alluded to earlier, these women ended up protesting the 1968 Miss America pageant, which they felt exploited these girls. They set up freedom trash cans, and women were encouraged to throw away their false eyelashes, their makeup, their hair curlers, their bras, and their girdles. Naturally, the media described them as bra burners, though they never actually burnt their bras. And so as you can see, much of the coverage of these women was going to skew against their favor. As a result of second-wave feminism, a conservative backlash then occurred, and this was directed primarily against the Equal Rights Act, which stated that equality under the law could not be abridged on account of sex, and it was passed by Congress fairly easily in 1972. Then, the amendment was sent to the states, and ratification seemed almost certain. But the conservative female, Phyllis Schlafly, organized opposition to the ERA, and we will now listen to why she opposes the ERA, so please click on the link on the PowerPoint and listen to the first 5-10 to 10 minutes. As you saw, by the late 1970s, the momentum behind the amendment had died because of the rising chorus of objections to it from people, including many anti-feminist women, who feared that it would disrupt traditional social patterns. By 1982, the amendment had finally died when the 10 years allotted for the ratification expired. At that deadline, the ERA had been ratified by 35 states, just three states short of the required 38 to put it in the Constitution. A major goal of American feminism since the 1920s had been the effort by women to win greater control of their own sexual and reproductive lives. In its least controversial form, this impulse helped produce an increasing awareness beginning in the 1970s about the problems of rape, sexual abuse, and domestic abuse. As society tried to address these problems, and as the dissemination of contraceptives and birth control information became more widespread and less controversial, 
one major issue would stand out and become the focal point of political disagreement for the next 50 years. Abortion. Abortion, despite what you may think, is as old as humankind and was practiced by Native Americans and the Pilgrims alike. Abortion had once been legal in much of the United States, but by the beginning of the 20th century, it was banned by statute in most of the country and remained so until the 1960s, though abortion still continued quietly and often dangerously outside of the law. The women's movement created strong pressures for the legalization of abortion, and several states had abandoned restrictions on abortion by the end of the 1960s, but it was the Supreme Court decision in 1973 that changed it forever. The Roe v. Wade decision legalized some forms of abortion and was based on a new theory of constitutional, quote, right to privacy that had been recognized by the court earlier in the Griswold v. Connecticut decisions. Roe v. Wade invalidated all laws prohibiting abortions during the first trimester, which is the first three months of pregnancy. Roe was later upheld in the Planned Parenthood v. Casey decision of 1992 when the Republican-dominated Supreme Court altered the standard of abortion restrictions that were seen as creating an undue burden on individuals. While we may all disagree on abortion, we can at least acknowledge that this right has been hotly debated in modern American politics, as the religious right took an increasingly larger role in conservative politics. But that is a conversation for another day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Women on the Court. Women were increasingly elected to the United States Congress during the mid-20th century, and currently, there are 101 congresswomen and 26 female senators. Women were also appointed to federal appellate court positions, and five have sat on the highest court in the land. The first female Supreme Court justice was Sandra Day O'Connor, a moderate Republican appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981, and she remained on the Supreme Court until 2006 when she resigned and was replaced by Samuel Alito. O'Connor typically sided with the conservative majority and authored two landmark majority opinions. In the 2003 case, Grutter v. Bollinger, the court upheld that affirmative action or the use of considering underrepresented minorities as part of the application process was constitutional, though she held that the matter should be revisited in 25 years. O'Connor also wrote the plurality opinion in the 2004 Hamdi v. Rumsfeld case, where the court recognized the power of the U.S. government to detain enemy combatants, including U.S. citizens, but stipulated that U.S. citizens must be afforded the rights of due process and to challenge their status as enemy combatants. The second female and first Jewish female Supreme Court justice was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, nicknamed the Notorious RBG, who was nominated by President Clinton in 1992. Ginsburg was an advocate for women's rights and against gender discrimination. In 1996, she authored the court's ruling in United States v. Virginia, which struck down the Virginia Military Institute's male-only admission policy. Now, women can attend the Institute 
and 431 cadets have graduated from the academy. More importantly, this ruling struck down any law that, quote, denies to women, simply because they are women, full citizenship stature, equal opportunity to aspire, achieve, participate in, and contribute to society, end quote. Ginsburg's dissents have also been useful. You may not realize it, but sometimes a well-articulated and supported dissent opinion can provide the basis for future Supreme Court actions as well as legislation. In 2007, Ginsburg authored an important dissent in the Ledbetter v. Goodyear case. Though the court ruled against the claim of paid discrimination under Title VII because of the statute of limitations, Ginsburg argued it was an undue burden to expect women to know that they were being paid less, and critically pointed out that Title VII could be amended by the legislature in order to allow lawsuits to recoup lost wages once pay discrimination had been determined. So ultimately, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, passed in 2008, closed this loophole to women. So Justice Ginsburg directly contributed to closing this loophole. Unfortunately, Justice Ginsburg died in September 2020 and was replaced one week before the 2020 election by Amy Coney Barrett. Please advance to the next slide entitled Native Rights. The American Indian Movement, or AIM, was founded in July 1968 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it is an American Indian advocacy group organized to address the issues related to sovereignty, leadership, and treaties. In its early years, AIM protested racism and civil rights against Native Americans. During the 1950s, increasing numbers of American Indians had been forced to move away from reservations, and tribal culture had come under attack because of federal Indian termination policies, which intended to assimilate them into the mainstream American culture. AIM, who was founded by Mary Jane Wilson, Dennis Banks, Vernon Bellacourt, Clyde Bellacourt, George Mitchell, and other activists worked prominently in the 1970s to address the systematic issues of poverty and police brutality against natives. AIM staged a number of protest actions on historically significant sites of injustice and violence perpetrated by the federal government against Native Americans. These protests included the occupation of Alcatraz Island, from 1969 to 1971, protests at the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1972, the occupation of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1973, and AIM and other Indian groups also conducted the Trail of Broken Treaties Spiritual March from Alcatraz to Washington, D.C. to support tribal sovereignty and bring attention to anti-Indian legislation. AIM continues its work to the present day, speaking out against injustices and working to improve conditions for Native Americans. They also fight against the removal of Native children from their parents' homes and their adoption by white families who do not teach them Native culture and language, thereby furthering assimilation. The American Indian movement, although not as strong as an organizational presence, is still very much a part of civil rights activism to this day. In fact, 
Native American activists recently won a significant Supreme Court battle in McGirt v. Oklahoma, decided in June 2020, that reestablished their treaty rights and their legal sovereignty. And recently, American Indians were arrested while protesting outside of Mount Rushmore. The point is that there are overlap between the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s, and that cooperation and overlap continues to this day. Please advance to the next slide entitled LGBTQ Rights. As we discussed, gays and lesbians enlisted en masse in the U.S. military during the First and Second World War. And the United States military used two policies to remove such individuals from the armed forces. A Section 8 discharge for recruits deemed them mentally unfit. The military also used the blue discharge which was called getting the blue ticket. And as I said, these two policies were specifically targeted at homosexuals and lesbians. The blue ticket became the favored discharge of choice by commanders seeking to remove homosexuals from the ranks, though it was also disproportionately used against African Americans. Blue discharges followed a veteran into civilian life, discounting them from GI benefits and leading to professional discrimination. The American medical community also fostered discrimination against LGBTQT individuals. Since the 1950s, psychiatrists in the American Psychological Society labeled homosexuality as a mental illness. Psychiatrists treated gay men with electroshock therapy, which is a form of abuse that is still used in so-called gay conversion therapy camps where children are tortured merely because of whom they are. In the 1950s onward, you could be arrested for being openly homosexual, and there were often raids on known gay clubs and bars. These individuals were also subjected to extreme violence and discrimination, and some states outlawed sodomy. In 1953, President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, which banned homosexuals from federal employment. As a result, over 5,000 federal employees lost their jobs over accusations of homosexuality, and these federal discriminatory actions drove LGBTQT individuals further into the shadows of society and emboldened law enforcement and politicians who became even more violent towards gay and lesbian citizens. In response to this injustice, the Mattachine Society was formed as an early gay rights group that worked to protect and fight for gay rights. While legal approaches were taken, spontaneous resistance also occurred, as was the case of riots against police raids of gay social centers. An example of this is the Stonewall Riot on June 28, 1969. The Stonewall Inn was a gay bar in New York City, which had been subjected to a police raid and the tension from ongoing harassment galvanized the community to riot for six days. This public action helped ignite the gay rights movement, and the protest through the streets of New York City is memorialized as the annual Gay Pride Parade, which first began on June 28, 1970, and now are celebrated around the world. One participant remarked, quote, It's very American to say, this is not right. It's very American to say, you promised equality. You promised freedom. 
And in a sense, the Stonewall riots said, get off our backs, deliver on the promise. So in every gay pride parade every year, Stonewall lives, end quote. In the aftermath of the Stonewall riots, the gay liberation movement focused on efforts to decriminalize homosexuality. By 1970, homosexuality was decriminalized in 20 states, and seven more followed in the 1980s and 1990s. But spurred on by the religious right in the 1990s, a new wave of government legislation was passed that reinforced LGBTQT discrimination in the face of such advances. One example occurred during President Clinton's administration, called the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, which prohibited openly gay individuals from serving in the armed forces, though it did protect closeted homosexuals from harassment. Then, the Defense of Marriage Act was passed in 1996, and marriage was defined for federal purposes as a union between a man and a woman, and allowed states to refuse recognizing same-sex couples. However, things got better when a critical decision in 2003 occurred with the Supreme Court's Lawrence v. Texas case. It decriminalized homosexuality in 14 more states, many of them in the South, and states slowly began the recognition of same-sex marriages in 2008 with California's state Supreme Court overruling propositions that denied same-sex marriages. In addition, during President Obama's presidency, a number of important gains were made for the LGBTQT community. The Matthew Shepard and James Beard Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2010 included gender identity as a protected class in federal hate crime legislation. In addition, some federal benefits were extended to LGBTQT federal employees, and the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy was repealed in 2010. Most critically, on June 26, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court held in a 5-4 decision called Oberfell v. Hodges that the 14th Amendment requires all states to grant same-sex marriages and recognize same-sex marriages granted in other states. While much progress was made, LGBTQT individuals still suffer from hatred, intimidation, and violence. Violence against transsexuals continues to rise. Children are continually tortured in gay therapy conversion camps, and LGBTQT members of minority communities face significant hardships. Acts of terrorism have also targeted the LGBTQT community. On June 12, 2016, 49 people were shot and killed in the Pulse Gay Nightclub Massacre, making it the second deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history, as well as the single worst act of violence against the LGBTQT community. The point is that while much progress has been made, there's still a lot to be done. Please advance to the last slide entitled, Conclusion. The long civil rights movement included the fight for black equality, women's liberation, native, and LGBTQT rights. These are decades-old struggles for dignity and justice. While there were great leaps in anti-discrimination and legal equality, numerous gaps in social justice, equal pay, discrimination, homophobia, racism, sexism, 
and xenophobia exist to this day. One last major legacy is that the movement's tactics and successes sparked a conservative backlash across the country that used social issues in the Southern strategy that formed a wedge that broke apart the New Deal coalition and eventually led to the ascendancy of social conservatives to the forefront of the Republican Party. But that's a conversation for another day. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.